The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things movies, music, media, monsters, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Wanted, a human being willing to become invisible. No remuneration. Box P-19. Thus reads a newspaper ad placed by uh, Professor Gibbs, an eccentric scientist who believes he has discovered a path to invisibility. Not with Jack Griffin's famous serum, though, but with a machine of his own invention. But he gets perhaps more than he bargained for when Kitty Carroll, a department store model with an axe to grind, arrives to be his first human test subject. Meanwhile, a gangster hiding out in Mexico, eager to return to the United States, learns about this invisibility machine and will stop at nothing to get his hands on it. Pour yourself a drink and prepare for plenty of hijinks as we discuss The Invisible Woman. To a new world of gods and monsters. Listen to them. Children of the night. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! I killed a wolf, a plain, ordinary wolf. By studying these and other species, we add to our knowledge of how life evolved, how it adapted itself to this world. He went for a little walk. He could his face. <laughs> Welcome to The Monsters That Made Us, the podcast where we celebrate the spooktacular characters and films in Universal Studios' Plastic Monster series. Today we're talking about the third monster movie Universal released in 1940, The Invisible Woman. I'm the Invisible Dan Cologne, and joining me as always is my co-host, Monster Mike Manzi. How are you, Mike? Glad I answered the ad to do this show. <laughs> Glad to be here, Dan. Just want to get this done out front. Not the Sue Storm story that I was expecting. No, very, very different from that. For those of you keeping track, this is our 12th Universal Monster film. Can you believe we've made it a full year's worth of shows already? Wow, congratulations. We did it. We're a year old. Yes. I mean, this has been kind of a dream project for me, and I'm really glad that we were able to, to make it a reality. So just want to take this moment to thank all of our listeners, anybody who's listening from the first day or if you're just discovering the show now, because without you guys, we would just be talking into the void. So thanks for listening. You know, just the fact that we have listeners outside of my family and uh, my immediate social circles is just pretty cool to me. And Mike, I'd like to thank you for doing this with me. Oh, thank you as well, Dan. And if I may just second all of that sentiment, I agree with all that. That's how I feel as well. Thank you all for listening. And yeah, just uh, to see the numbers is very exciting and it's a lot of fun. It gives you like an extra sort of push, you know, yeah. some days to do it and do better. And so, uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun so far and I'm looking forward to the next two years or so, maybe even more. <laughs> yeah. I tell people all the time, like, this is something that I just, I like doing and I feel like the need to do it. And I would probably do it if we only had five listeners, you know, and it was just my immediate family. Like I said, the fact that we have people listening from all over is really cool. So, all right. So we're 12 movies in and we've seen that Universal has no problem injecting comedy into their horror films. But now, like, we're straight up in parody territory. There's no mistaking this for a horror film. This is a complete farce. They may not have had trouble injecting comedy into horror, but they're having trouble injecting horror 
horror into comedy this time around. Yes. Now, I know that in the context of this show, 12 movies is pretty quick for that sort of transition. But, you know, it's easy to forget that we've only been talking about the Universal Monster movies, not the plethora of horror films Universal's been releasing in the same time. Yeah, nor to mention all the other studios' horror monster movies as well. Right. There's a lot out there. Yeah. We've covered 15 years up to this point. So I guess, you know, after 15 years with especially, you know, a pretty solid decade of really good horror, it doesn't seem all that unusual or unexpected for them to sort of take this approach, you know, especially with the real life horrors happening in the world at the time, which we sort of talked about in the last episode. It makes some sense to me, but I'm kind of wondering, you know, did they maybe go a little too far the other end with this one? So Mike, I'm really curious to know what your experience was with the invisible woman yeah it was it was kind of shocking like i was pretty shocked (laughs) i knew we were going down a certain path with the last movie and like we're gonna end with abbott and costello and you know the last one was more funny than scary and i was fine with that because it was still scary when it had to be but if that was like abbott and costello this is straight up three stooges there is even a three stooge in this movie. Yes. Shem Powered. Yes. Mind-blowing cast. Like, we'll talk about Margaret Hamilton, too, who at this point was the Wicked Witch of the West. Yep. We need to elevate her people to being a female horror icon because <laughs> she, <laughs> she deserves it. I was really unprepared for just how far this went. Like, there is no effort to scare anybody, really, in this movie. It's 100% comedy. I don't really... I didn't really appreciate a lot of the comedy at first, right? Because it seemed very sexist-based. Yes. Lots of thoughts. Lots of thoughts to sort of iron out over this one. Now, that's not to say there isn't some value here. Like, I do think once I realized what I was in for i tried to adjust the best i could and as a comedy it's kind of funny here and there you know like i like the butler we'll talk about george a little Mm -hmm. bit i think Mm -hmm. there's some good parts there i kind of like what john barrymore is doing with his stuff but this is a for all intent purpose uh kind of a crude raunchy sexy comedy for the time (laughs) i feel like it's like like a a rompy sex comedy it's so strange so I struggle with this one. I would say that of all of the the movies that are uh, that exist in the official sort of Universal Monsters canon, this is the one I maybe appreciate least. And it probably has more to do with the fact that it really just doesn't feel like it belongs with the rest more than it being a good or bad movie. You know, I think when you look at it outside of the context, and if you if you were to not watch it as, uh, you know, part of the Invisible Man legacy collection, you know, if you were to, to just watch it on its own merit, it's probably better than I give it credit for. But, you know, we're watching it in this context, and it is included as a universal monster movie. And I think that's really is to its detriment because it suddenly is being compared to you know much better more legitimate you know horror films so i mean it has its own problems i think that more than anything else we've seen up to this time it really suffers from the sexism of the time you know like there's a lot of legitimate complaints and and, and criticisms but as a universal monster movie like this really just doesn't do it for me i think i rank it at the bottom just for that reason you know is it truly that bad no probably not but if i'm viewing it in this context i can't really place it very high yeah and that's what we're here for right ultimately like that's what we're doing and like that's how i want to approach it as well and yeah like it might be an okay movie on its own but that's not what it's kind of supposed to be at least in my mind just feels like they wasted an opportunity 
what I was thinking watching it is one of the only problems here is how it's directed. Like if this same script was taken seriously and dramatically and you Mm -hmm. just kind of bled all of those comedic elements out of it and like there's actually some good bones here i like the character of kitty carroll like the invisible woman has agency at least up until the very end right but it could kind of chalk that up to i don't know mind poisoning from the serum something went on at the end there talk about the ultimate blind date right (laughs) but but like up until then that's a good through line for the story i kind of love the idea of the the thugs you know mm-hmm, what if mm-hmm. like a bunch of crooks got a hold of of invisibility so there's some things here that if it was just treated more seriously if they didn't you know intend to make a comedy i'd probably be like very happy you know what i'm saying yeah. I'd be like wow this was like a very good entry like how they made it like dangerous and more of a gangster film maybe but also kind of like saucy as well because it's and it's a naked lady running around the entire movie yeah. right like you can't kind of get away from that apologies in advance if it come down a little harder than usual on this one for not being a monster movie <laughs> yeah i mean i think that's a good disclaimer to put up front i think we're yeah i think that's probably a fair thing to say i think we will probably judge this a little harsher than it deserves for that reason i mean at least we're, you know we're getting it out of the way now it's not you know again not necessarily a bad movie but we're going to judge it as a universal monster movie so so keep that in mind so let's get into it so with the success of the invisible man returns that encouraged the powers that be to continue pretty much milking whatever they could out of their screen rights to the original H.G. Wells' Invisible Man novel. With the invisibility gags used in United Artists' 1937 Cary Grant film Topper being such a crowd pleaser, I think it made perfect sense to the executives at Universal to try their hand at an invisible comedy. After the costly budget overruns with Invisible Man Returns, Universal decided on a more realistic $300,000 budget for this film, which was about $46,000 more than they had allotted for the Invisible Man Returns. So I think they're expecting, like, we're not going to be able to make this as cheaply as we thought we could, so let's, you know, bump up the numbers just a little bit. So in the director's chair, we've got A. Edward Sutherland, who I've mentioned on the show before. He was originally in talks to direct Dracula's daughter before bowing out due to other commitments. Sutherland had a pretty prolific directing career in the 20s and 30s with silent comedies, working with the likes of Charlie Chaplin, Stan Laurel, and Oliver Hardy. But one of his more interesting credits that I found, he was in the 1914 Charlie Chaplin film Tilly's Punctured Romance as one of the original Keystone Cops. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, so this guy is not necessarily, you know, a a bad choice to direct this film. It's clear where Universal wanted to go and why A. Edward Sutherland would be a great fit for the material. After learning just now about some of that Chaplin influence, it is on the screen. Yes. It is there. Like, there is a full-on Chaplin character in this movie. Yeah. So, Kurt Siodmak, who also was mentioned on the show before, he was the screenwriter for The Invisible Man Returns. He gets a story credit here. Not a screenplay credit, but he does get the story credit. His idea was later punched up by veteran comedy writers Frederick I. Rinaldo and Robert Lees. Now, Rinaldo and Lees would eventually go on to write 1941's The Black Cat. Now, that's the one with Basil Rathbone and Bela Lugosi, not the 1934 film starring Karloff and Lugosi. They would also write Abbott and Costello films such as Hold That Ghost, Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, and Abbott and Costello Meet the Invisible Man. They're more 
perhaps noteworthy credits would come later, but these guys were a pretty solid writing duo at the time. So now for our starring role, Universal had their sights set on Margaret Sullivan, who had just starred opposite Jimmy Stewart in the shop around the corner. Now at the time, she was with MGM, but she still owed a film to Universal because of her contract, which stemmed back to the Lamley era. Not wanting to appear in a, in a silly farce that would probably do nothing for a career, Sullivan instead jumped at an opportunity to play the lead role opposite Frederick March in director John Cromwell's 1941 film, So Ends Our Night. That film was based on the novel Flotsam by Eric Maria Remarque, who also wrote All Quiet on the Western Front. Now, if you remember, the 1930 film adaptation of that novel uh, earned Universal two Oscars for Best Picture and Best Director. So you can see why that material, like, you know, So Ends Our Night would be more attractive to Margaret Sullivan than The Invisible Woman. Universal subsequently slapped her with a restraining order prohibiting her from working anywhere but Universal. But of course, once the legalities were, were ironed out, Sullivan agreed to do two more films for Universal in exchange for being allowed to do the Cromwell film. Uh, she would later honor that commitment by appearing opposite Charles Boyer in the, the Fanny Hurst film Backstreet, as well as Appointment for Love, both released in 1941. Now on September 12, 1940, Universal signed Virginia Bruce to play their Invisible Woman. A legendary star of stage and screen and Philadelphia native, John Barrymore was cast in the role of Professor Gibbs. He was once a, a prominent silent film star, of course, appearing, maybe the, the most relevant title for our audience would be the 1920 silent Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, where he played the starring role. Yeah, and also, you know, legendary last name in film history. Yes. Dating all the way up to Drew, you know, and Lionel Barrymore was out there around doing stuff too. That's right. Very cool to see a John Barrymore performance here. Yes, and I was very excited to learn that he was born in Philadelphia. That is my city for those of us paying attention. And I just learned that he is buried in Philadelphia and uh, I plan to take a trip out there to find his resting place. He was, of course, once a prominent silent film star, but at this point in his career, he had more or less become a parody of himself and was usually cast for his name, you know, in an attempt to make these like sort of smaller, sillier B-movies just a little bit more respectable. Was this sort of also towards maybe the end of his career as well, I'm getting the sense, or is this just like incredible makeup? going on in this because I just don't feel like they had that kind of budget but I'm also wondering like you know he's doing a voice he was sort of known to like do a lot of different looks and things so I was just sort of wondering about that if he really was an old man or if he was playing an old man right well he died in 1942 and he only made I think two other movies after this before he died so this is like literally at the end of his career and his life oh interesting Okay. Not necessarily his greatest performance, but still fun to see someone as big named as, uh, as John Barrymore in here. Fun fact about John Barrymore in this film, apparently at this point in his career, he was having some trouble memorizing his lines. So what he would do is he would cut up his script and, and hide it on set, you know, behind vases on the backs of other actors and so on and so forth. So I think if you were to rewatch, you could probably catch him trying to find his dialogue through the scenes. It has been said about Marlon Brando that it, that is how he had to perform in The Godfather. Oh, sure. Yeah. He would put his lines, like, sort of hide them all around the room, and he would get up and walk around and recite his lines off of things. It, it makes me wonder if that technique didn't help him be a more convincing, sort of absent-minded professor character. You know what I mean? It might have uh, yeah. aided in that performance to some degree. Okay, so in our leading man role, we've got John Howard as the sort of irresponsible playboy Richard Russell. Prior to The Invisible Woman, he had appeared alongside Katherine Hepburn, Cary Grant, and Jimmy Stewart in The Philadelphia Story. 
but is perhaps most well-known for playing pulp hero Bulldog Drummond in no fewer than seven films. Wow. He was not the original Bulldog Drummond. I think he came in a few films in, but he was like a pulp hero. Yeah, he played that character seven times. I think he started one of those movies with John Barrymore, if I'm not mistaken. Interesting, because he doesn't really like strike me as like a guy that would go by the name Bulldog. Right. Or, you know, like I just didn't really get like a very tough kind of facade from him. He's kind of playing like what if Bruce Wayne's parents lived and he just grew up <laughs> like a dick. Yeah. No, he's terrible. But the actor, John Howard, he kind of reminded me of like a poor man's Clark Gable. Totally. I could see that. He's got kind of that sort of... I don't know, that sort of swagger, but maybe not with the same sort of uh, gravitas. I don't know. But like, I got a little bit of like a poor man's Clark Gable from him. So we've got character actor Charles Ruggles, who had previously appeared alongside Kate Hepburn and Cary Grant in Bringing Up Baby. He does much of the heavy lifting comedy-wise here uh, as the sardonic butler George. Yes. And think in terms of just comedic chops, he's probably like the funny guy in this movie. Of course, everyone gets an opportunity, but like he's doing all the comedy. Yeah, this is the Chaplin-esque character I was referring mm -hmm. to, where like first shot of the movie, he's walking down the stairs and he slips on a champagne bottle and does like a huge pratfall. Yes. And like later he's going to do this amazing ladder stunt. And I just love this guy's delivery. And like, granted, it's the wrong movie, but I want to watch this guy in other things now. Yes, he is hands down, I think, the best comedy actor in this whole movie. He's like an old pro, right? Like he has no trouble whatsoever delivering any of this material. He feels like a guy that comics have studied and never talked about, or right. like have watched his performances and never let anybody like in on or something. So we got Margaret Hamilton, the Wicked Witch, as you mentioned previously. Amazing. Yeah. She would be like my number two in terms of best comedic performers in this movie. She's kind of doing a similar job as Charles Ruggles. I mean, they're both the help, right, in this rich man's mansion. Yeah, she bounces off of John Barrymore more, and I think they do well with each other too, but yes. I was just kind of shocked because, like I mentioned, I knew her as the Wicked Witch, and she's very scary as the Wicked Witch and convincing, but looking at her resume and things, I was not aware of like how much of a comedic actress, or just well-rounded actress that she was. She did westerns, she did everything. The only other thing I know her more from is the Paul Lynn Halloween special from 1978. Yes. I just have not seen a lot of her, and most of what it is is in connection to The Wicked Witch. So she shows up in a quote-unquote universal horror movie, and I'm, like, losing my mind. <laughs> yeah, and this is after The Wizard of Oz. Like, she would have been a household name at this point, and it's weird to see her kind of slumming it here in The Invisible Woman, but still, like, knocking it out of the park as far as I'm concerned. You know, she does the best she can with this material. Yeah, and I'll say that for most of the cast, like she's in it to play. I think John Barrymore is really here to play around, like for whatever. It seems like he's sort of like trying to get the last ounce out of the camera, you know, yeah. that kind of performance. You know, for what we see of Virginia Bruce, I think she's great. She's had had a career up until this point as well on screen. It's funny that they didn't go with a no-name actress, right? Like they did with the men mm -hmm, in the previous mm -hmm. films. They tried to find like someone new with a distinct voice, but like I feel like she's got a lot of grace and also she kind of scares me a little bit, you know, as a character, <laughs> sure. right? Like she's got a lot of force to her, which is good. For the type of movie it is, people are in it and stuff. It's just, again, to have the Wicked Witch of the West in this movie and not be like a villain mm -hmm. or or something supernatural or something just kind of felt like a waste. 
Yeah, I can agree with that. So we've got Austrian actor Oscar Homolka playing the gangster Blackie Cole. He and Donald McBride, who plays the character Foghorn, later went on to appear with Marilyn Monroe in 1955's The Seven Year Itch. So you might recognize those two guys from that movie. Shemp Howard, as you mentioned, one of the original Three Stooges, is here basically playing a Three Stooge character as Frankie. Yes, what is happening, Dan? There is literally, there are three thugs, like a tall, thin one, a short, kind of fatter one, and then there's Shemp. Yes. To go from the last movie to this movie and just realize, oh, I just went from Abbott and Costello to the Three Stooges is like insane. Yes. Yeah, because we talked about how the mummy's hand is in a lot of ways an Abbott and Costello film. Yeah, so we're getting, we're going from Abbott and Costello to the Three Stooges in one move. Crazy. Rounding out the cast is Charles Lane as Mr. Growley. Now, Frank Capra fans should recognize him as he appeared in 10 of Capra's films, including It's a Wonderful Life, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Arsenic and Old Lace, and You Can't Take It With You. But uh, I, of course, know him from his appearances on I Love Lucy, usually playing a character who is totally humorless and uh, unaffected by Lucy's sort of antics. I think he's like just the guy to go to if you wanted somebody who will never humor ridiculous going on around like the perfect straight man, you know, always grumpy. I think he's always kind of cranky here. He's especially harsh. I think he's playing like a real villain role, but like he's always just been kind of these cranky characters. I mean, his name is Growly in this, right? Yeah. He's growling. He's growly. He's grumpy. Like, yeah, he's a real menace. He's, <laughs> he's probably like the true villain of the movie <laughs> for a while there. Right. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned I Love Lucy, man, because like, man, I feel like TV should have been invented by now because this this feels very much like early television kind of stuff. And I'm starting to distinguish almost in my own mind, like tiers of quality when it comes to films. You yeah. Know? And I guess that comes down to budget, time, and every kind of restraint, you know, under the sun and all that. But, like, to think that, like, houses won't really have televisions in them for another decade or so blows my mind because I feel like, material-wise, this is it. Mm-hmm. Yep. This feels like episodic kind of stuff that you would very late and see on TV and, like, shot on those kinds of sets. And, yeah, the quality isn't that much worse when we get to stuff like I Love Lucy and things, you know? Yeah. So that just crossed my mind as well. No other better time to bring it up. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got John P. Fulton returning for special effects, and he was nominated for a second Academy Award, or at least, you know, in terms of Universal Monsters. He was nominated for another Academy Award for his work here. The Invisible Woman was nominated for Best Special Effects, of course. It was one of nine films, and uh, it lost to the war film I Wanted Wings, which I am completely unfamiliar with. These effects seamless this time. So, okay, no, I'm going to argue with you there. Okay, then help me out, because maybe they were just tricking my eye in the way they used the effects, but there were gloves slapping faces, there were people grabbing people by the lapels and, and everything, and I was just like kind of in awe. Yeah, so for the most part, I think you're right. I think they managed to accomplish a lot of stuff pretty seamlessly, but there's one particular sequence. I wrote it down in my notes. It's the scene where Kitty confronts Mr. Growly in his office, and she starts taking off her clothes. You get a glimpse, you get a couple glimpses of the black velvet sort of bodysuit that she was wearing under the clothes because her arms crossed in front of her. And so, mm. and so you see a little bit of the black. Uh, so 
Yeah, it's not entirely seamless, but I will say that they did accomplish quite a bit with this technology, especially with a comedy. I mean, you've got a lot of physical comedy in this. So I think the fact that that's maybe the one time where it becomes apparent how they did it, something to be said for that. You know, I think it is pretty impressive attempt. It feels like they really switched up the method too, and they went less with sort of the puppetry stuff. Yeah. Like there seems to be like kind of none of that here. And it's all like, let's actually have the actress on set in the giant black sock from head to toe and we'll do that technique for every shot and that really seems to be how most of it's done where it's like you're right like okay seamless by today's standards no there are you can if you strain see but like compared to the previous films i feel like they really got this down really well because there's that great shot later when they get to the lodge and she's wearing sort of that beekeeper thing over her head right and then she takes that off and you see it kind of like rub against her face perfectly and stuff and so like i was really in awe of that shot but there's like a lot going on yeah There's always a lot going on in an Invisible Person movie, and when it comes down to complaints, the effects are are not one of them. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I think I think you make a good point that there's a lot less of the the old school fishing wire floating object trick. You know, there's a lot less of that, which I like. And that means that there's more invisible person interacting with other characters and the environment. So in that respect, yeah, I, I would say that this is an impressive film. But I was a little bit disappointed that they got as far as they did. And there's still like that one bit. I was like, oh, come on, you were this close. I think it just kind of goes to show like they could have done better if they had more time and money, but it's just one of those situations where it's like good enough right it's better than good enough to an executive it's like come on like get this thing out there yeah it's just a comedy folks (laughs) fair enough so the score was composed by an uncredited frank skinner who is maybe most famous for composing the score to harvey this score is worth noting because it would later be recycled by universal for hold that ghost and a few other films so that was sort of the standard practice at the time you know take a score that works and then just keep using it for whatever they need it for the son of frankenstein score was also cannibal by Universal as well. But I wanted to give Frank Skinner a shout out because he does not appear in the credits. And, you know, I think his score is a, is a solid comedy score. Totally. And coming from Harvey, like, you could kind of, hearing that, you kind of feel it too because that movie has invisible like kind of deals with invisibility and and that kind of whimsy right it's like much more on that edge than like a darker edge i mean it could be read as a dark thing but like now that you say that i was like oh right like all those cues are are perfectly timed and it's guiding you along if you don't remember to laugh like it'll tell you yes i think with that it's a good time to get into the movie itself so the movie opens with that great opening credit sequence with the the silhouette of a woman at a vanity turns invisible we get a title that is similar to the title that we get in uh, the invisible man returns where it just sort of appears piece by piece and then we open up on the mansion with the opening gag like they waste no time the butler george is coming down the stairs with a, a tray in his hand and slips very comically down the, like he slips on a, a champagne bottle spills down the stairs it's a very chaplain-esque gag as we sort of talked about in through the front door comes a lawyer right or, or sort of a financial advisor i think I, i'm pretty sure he's a lawyer it's like his accountant yeah yeah he's like an accountant right so we, what we find out is the man who's not in this scene the man that they all work for has made headlines and not for the first time you know he's a womanizer right he's he's dating all kinds of women and the thing is is that with each woman that he is with they all leave him and sue him for a lot of money so the gist of this scene is that he is finding out that he is broke right he has no money in comes Playboy Dick Russell, 
He's got that thin-ass mustache, like all playboys at the time probably did. And yeah, the guy shows him the newspaper, and he's like, oh yeah, that lady sued me for a million dollars. I got off easy. I only have to pay her a hundred grand. <laughs> I was like, oh, I hate this guy so much. Um, he's so just like cavalier about all this stuff, too. It almost made me wonder how like an actor like William Powell would play the role, because he kind of has that mm. same sort of nonchalance to him, even through like high drama and, uh, you know, stressful situations. But this guy like he's kind of unlikable and like like William Powell's always charming right we we always just think he's always funny and, and likable I get a bad vibe from him because like with someone else I would probably give him a chance if I knew him or whatever but like I don't know this guy just like ultimately like I I don't know I'm just not on his side yeah <laughs> and like throughout the film they're gonna try and sort of soften him up and and make him grow and change and and stuff like that but you know for the most part he's not gonna shift that much dramatically um so we're sort of stuck with this dude and we find out that he's broke like he can't be a womanizer anymore because he doesn't have any more money so he's pretty much just paid off the last debt and i think we also find out that that he's got like this scientist guy friend of his like a doc brown yes that he funds <laughs> yeah that's the other thing we learn in this scene is that he inherited from his father this scientist who lives on the property in what appears to be sort of a guest house. <laughs> Very Cato-esque, yeah. And who inherits a person, you know, from their father's will? It's like, oh, by the way, I own this scientist. He lives in the backyard. Yeah, we get we get no real information to expand on any of that, like why his father would have had this guy living on his property and, and funding his research. And we get none of that. All we know is that this young guy, this young, wealthy playboy, has lost all of his money because all of his different flings and is now also responsible for this scientist living on his property. And they can't afford to do any of it anymore, right? So now we get a glimpse at this professor, right? Uh, John Barrymore as Professor Gibbs and we get Margaret Hamilton as sort of the housekeeper, Mrs. Jackson. And he is learning that he has no money to continue funding his experiments. But in terms of timing, all that money really was, or the money that he was expecting to get, was going to be like payment for his next test subject, right? The work is already done. We find out that the current experiment is this invisibility machine. And his goal is to find a human test subject. He has supposedly uh, already tested this thing on a cat. Oh, I wish we saw that. But now he's looking for money to pay a test subject so that he can test his invention. But of course, we discover there's no money. So he immediately heads to the newspaper office to revise his newspaper ad looking for his test subject to change the payment from $3,000 to no remuneration. So much to unpack here. There's so much. I mean, to be to be fair, most of it is either physical comedy or it's, you know, funny dialogue. There's not a whole lot of, like, really pertinent information. Yeah. There were, like, three big things to me about this little, like, two-part sequence of meeting the scientist and, and going to the to revise the ad. First of all, yeah, shocked about Margaret Hamilton. Like, I was like, oh, my God, the Wicked Witch is in this movie. Yeah. And then you get uh, Professor Gibbs doesn't even recognize her that like they've lived together for years and all this stuff and then it's like well you know your place is in the kitchen not my lab and I was like oh my god <laughs> here we go and and luckily there's not that much of 
of those it's not there's not too much of that but there is more of that later in the movie like when we get to mr growley he threatens to fire one of the older ladies and says there's always a younger lady looking for your job so it's there and it's here and it's like right off the bat any movie from this time period i kind of assume that there are going to be some levels of misogynistic stuff happening unfortunately but this movie is particularly it like lays it on thicker than most i think from especially today's perspective, and I don't want to get too far into it, right, because we could be here forever, right. but the concept of this movie is a naked lady running around all the time, you know? And, like, even though she's invisible, just the idea of that is very titillating, okay? There's lots of leg kind of focusing on the legs and, like, how sexy legs are and, and all that kind of thing. And it's just, like, so strange to be watching this. This movie is obsessed with the fact that their star is naked through most of the movie. They're just so into that idea, more so than the previous Invisible films. They make reference in both previous that we've seen uh, that the main character is naked and it gets cold and and like you get you kind of get the one line about it and then they move on. With this, it feels very much like they were like she's naked guys. We have to have her be naked and invisible for a lot of this movie and we're going to like really play up the fact that she's naked. It kind of makes me uncomfortable to be honest. It'll be coming up more throughout the movie as we sort of get into it too. Like it, it's like you said it's nearly every scene that they remind Mind you, by the way, she's naked in her birthday suit. And if it's not that, it's like, huh, I wonder what you really look like, you know? So it's so, so much of this is, is focused on her physical appearance as opposed to, you know, anything else about her. <laughs> That's another line. So like later, Dick is going to say, well, if you decided to become invisible, you couldn't have been all that attractive. Right. And I'm just like, oh, my God. But hey, yeah, like you say, like, that's. That was the world. Yes. Okay, so that's that's one thing. Let me move on from that for now. The thing that I think is really awesome is we have the combo of the serum and the machine. Right. That's a cool kind of addition to the idea of what it takes to become invisible. And it'll be an interesting plot point that, again, I think they kind of waste later on. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's not the serum. This movie doesn't feature any sort of connection to the previous Invisible Man films. There's no mention of Griffin. You know, like for all intents and purposes, this is a completely standalone, isolated story that is only concerned with you know, invisibility. So yeah, there is a serum, but it is not the serum. Plus you have the machine. Like there's a lot happening here. Yeah, I thought that was a good choice though. Like I thought that was a smart sort of way to kind of evolve the practice of invisibility. And again, like you said, there is no real connection to the previous ones. So like this guy, you know, figured it out on his own in his way. I was able to sort of grab onto that a little bit more and I thought that was cool. I get really disappointed though when they go into the machine without the serum at the end oh, and yeah. things happened that I wish didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> like I wish other things happened when that happened, you know? But still, good concept. Good try there on that one. And the last thing about all this is, like, he's really going to place an ad in the newspaper? Like, he's really going to just put, like, you ever want to become invisible? Come on over. I'll turn anyone invisible. <laughs> like, whatever you want. So that sort of, like, hook 
for the story kind of reminded me of like I mean it, they're very different movies but just that hook reminded me of Safety Not Guaranteed just this ad looking for somebody who is willing to be a test subject for this in invisibility experiment or in Safety Not Guaranteed I think it's time travel the idea of placing an ad to find somebody who will partake in your, your wacko bullshit is kind of funny to me I just think like it's it's, it's just a little dangerous when it comes to this like right. particular like you just don't want to put what it is in the ad because you're going to get what happens you're going to get the crime element come out like the gangsters are going to come for you want to you know to be invisible gangsters and so like you kind of want to leave that out of the ad that it's an invisibility machine just like experiment you know looking for test subject call me and to your point, everybody who responds to this ad that we witness, like everybody who re responds is looking to use the invisibility for some sort of nefarious or uh, self-serving purpose. I think the one letter that we get to see is like some guy wants to make his wife disappear. Of course. <laughs> Horrible joke. But like, yeah, nobody nobody responds to this ad that we see who wants to be the subject for the sake of science, or whatever. Everyone's just trying to use the invisibility for their own selfish reasons. Uh, Kitty Carroll, no exception. She, of course, becomes the hero by the end of the movie, but she responds to the ad so that she can take some vengeance against her boss. So yeah, a really, really dangerous way to go about finding a subject. Okay, so the ad is placed in the newspaper. The P.O. box gets flooded with responses. Professor Gibbs returns home with like his stack of mail, and we see another one of his experiments, which is a self-driving car. A self-driving car, the Tesla or whatever, right? Like he's Elon Musk, this guy. Right. It made me think of, we're at least two decades from the love bug. Or my mother, the car. Or, uh, yeah. <laughs> my knowledge of self-driving car history is is uh, not as good as I would like it to be right now. But uh, yeah, so we you get a taste of what Professor Gibbs is all about. We see his self-driving car and then we see him opening up the mail. As I sort of mentioned, we get a response from a guy who just wants to make his his wife disappear. Another guy tells him he's cuckoo. He just writes him to tell him he's crazy. It kind of feels like modern day. Yeah. I mean, maybe even especially now with the internet where you just get comment sections. People are just sending them telegrams like, you're nuts. Yeah. Get bent. I kind of want to place a Craigslist ad and just word it the same way and see what kind of responses I get. Yeah, in this scene, we also learn that he has uh, tested this machine on the cat. We also learn that the invisibility wears off. You know, unlike previous films, whoever was invisible was stuck invisible until an antidote was created, you know, or discovered. Or So otherwise, you know, that person was going to stay invisible and eventually go crazy because of the effects of the drug. But with this, it's a very temporary invisibility. We will learn later that you can manipulate it a little little further than that but this is an invisibility that will eventually fade yeah i think that was a smart addition to to all of this right i feel like they kind of pushed that as far as it should go where it's like trying to do the antidote and you know racing the clock and all that this introduces a whole other slew of conflict now because you know what if she's caught out and about and the antidote wears off and you got a naked lady in the street <laughs> oh my gosh just just imagine but also, it's like, seriously, like, it, there's other, there, there is like that element is introduced. And I think that's pretty wise, you know? I agree. I think that to have the hunt for an antidote on top of everything else in this would, would just make it a little bit too top heavy. You know, it just, it just wouldn't flow as well as it does. Because I do, I do think that the simplicity of this narrative is one of the better things about it. It allows for a lot of the comedy to come through. I'm totally cool with that change. Okay, so we get our legitimate response. 
Kay Carroll signs this letter volunteering to become invisible. And so the appointment is made and uh, Kay Carroll, whoever that is, is going to potentially turn invisible. Yeah, they just automatically assume that it's a guy. It's a man, yep. They're like, whoever this gentleman Kay Carroll is, it'll be perfect. George, the butler, is busy, like, covering everything in the house. They're, they're preparing to move everything out, you know, because as we said, Dick Russell has no money left. So, so now, like, everyone's just in full move out of the house mode. And Dick comes back in to say, hey, you can undo all of this. We're going we're gonna to be fine. Because he's really banking on this invisibility machine being a success. It's no wonder this guy is broke because his financial know-how is just, it's pretty questionable to begin with. What is up with this butler? Like, why is he even sticking around? Like, how is he getting paid? Like, he does threaten to quit like five times in this movie. Oh, yeah, he does quit like two or three times. You're right. But I mean, I'm like, he inherited this guy with the scientist, I'm assuming. Like, yeah. There's just like a whole bunch of people this guy owns now. <laughs> <laughs> but that, but this is, you know, again, like that guy, George, the guy playing George, Charlie Ruggles, he's great in this scene, you know, and it's just like that. All right. Like everything's packed. Well, unpack everything. We're staying. And he's just like, you mother. <laughs> yeah. And that joke is reused, I think, at least once or twice more. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pack it up again, yeah, George. Yeah. We're leaving. And he's just like this son of a bitch. <laughs> As they prepare for the arrival of Kay Carroll for the experiment, 10 minutes in, we, we officially get to see our heroine, Kitty Carroll, as she receives the response. She has been selected to be the test subject in the invisibility experiment, and she could not be more excited. And I think in this scene, we do get the sense that she is replied to the ad so that she can retaliate against her boss, who we have not met yet. Her rent is past due. She's got a lot of other issues as well. So she's hoping that this will be her sort of ticket out of there in some way. And so, Dan, this is where I think, you know, I realized from today's perspective that this is the true horror of the movie is like what Kitty's day to day life is like. Just unbelievable what she has to go through and what they all have to put up with. Yep. Not, and I'm not not just her boss, but like her job. Like she is basically her and her friends are like models where they will like work at a department store like Gimbal's or something yep. and like walk around in a circle for rich people to look at and be like, oh, I like that dress. I like that dress. And like, I know this was a real thing. And like, this was a real job and stuff, but this is just so depressing. <laughs> and I was like, okay, it is a horror movie. <laughs> yeah, it's clear that she has a lot more on her plate than just a horrible boss. But I think she she's hoping that by becoming invisible and giving her boss one four that she will be able to make some more money. You know, I think that's what she's trying to do is leverage more money out of him. We like we learn in the next scene that he's the sort of guy who will monitor people being late, you know, by two minutes. You know, he, he's real, real stickler for the time clock. Yeah, yeah. He's a real fascist. And like, she's trying to organize a union in the, in the fucking dressing room. She's like, this isn't worth sixteen fifty a week. Yeah. We could do better. We should complain. Like, we, we deserve more and all this stuff. And he comes in and he's like, I'll just fire you all and get younger women. And they're like, damn it. Yeah, literally everybody who gives him some resistance at all, like the one, the poor woman with the head cold, the seamstress. The seamstress in the in the shop, you know, you know, she resists on some level and he's ready to like replace her with a younger woman. Literally everybody who goes against his method of doing things is like threatened with termination, which is crazy. But you know, it's 1940 and you know, he's the man in charge of the department store and he can fire at will. You know, he's one of those drunk with power sort of guys. This is like a big stereotypical character that's in tons and tons of movies and stuff. So like, I was just like, wow. I just was not expecting this guy in this movie, but here he is. No, but he's, he's great at it. When I saw who the actor was, I thought, oh, this guy's perfect. Yeah, he's like the quintessential guy that does this 
role. So we get a, a moment where Kitty is modeling some clothes for these rich women. We know they're rich because they're wearing furs. And one of them like sort of grabs the dress to, to get a better look at it, tears the dress, leads to a whole situation where Kitty is blamed for the dress ripping and refuses to apologize. And, you know, Growly comes over and says, well, the customer is always right. That sort of bullshit. Kitty ends up leaving in a huff, having apologized reluctantly. And she's like, you know what? I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to go become invisible. And then we'll, we'll see who gets the last laugh here. She keeps repeating this line, which I thought was like really well staged, which is like, what would you do if you could be invisible? Yes. It's like, wow, like that really kind of struck a chord the way that she like lets that out. It's like, I, I totally believe her. And to be quite honest, I wish she was visible more throughout the movie. Right. Like, I wish there was like more problems with the serum where like maybe just her head was visible. Mm -hmm. Just so I could see the actress act more. Like that would have been a great thing to do at, towards the end with when the machine starts to, to go a little bit wonky, you know, like that would have been the way to go. That's exactly what I was thinking, where it's like, oh, like you're half invisible, like your arms, we can see your arms in your head, but that's about it. Right. I, I agree with you. I think Kitty Carroll is, is a fun character, and I think Virginia Bruce does a pretty solid job of playing this character as well as she can. Um, she seems to be having fun with it. I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of her, but it is kind of funny that the machine works perfectly the first try. Yeah, there's no doubt. And, and like, I kind of knew when I saw the self-driving car, this scientist was pretty much on the level. Right. And he's super assured of himself, too. He's like, don't worry, it's going to work. <laughs> yeah, there's no doubt in his mind. And sure enough, it does work. There's some fun business there where it's like you weren't expecting a woman and he's like, well, it doesn't matter, right? Like he's like, the only reason I w was expecting a man is because uh, I'm embarrassed to tell you you have to be naked to do this. And then that's where it starts. She's in her birthday suit. Yeah, you would think if that was his concern that he would have put that in the ad, you know, like men only or something like that. But yeah, no, he leaves it completely open to anybody and is surprised to discover a woman has answered his ad. Now, he'll kind of have a line towards the end of the movie, Professor Gibb, mm -hmm. which might suggest that he would have preferred a naked man in the room, you know, if you know where I'm going. Like, he has a line, I can't remember what it is exactly, but he says, like, something to the effect that he never paid attention to women, you know? Right. And, and then he kind of looks at the camera and gives, like, a wink in a way. <laughs> so, I don't know. They, they touched on that at the end, and it just kind of brought me back to this moment where it was like, oh, yeah, you know, he had no problem with like a naked guy but like he's all nervous around the woman yeah it's hard to tell if we're meant to read much into that or if he's literally just so focused on his work that he doesn't have time to think about women you know I, the, tough to know but i would like to read that as maybe he's not just a simple straight man yeah i mean that to me as far as i'm concerned that adds a level of, of complexity to the character that would have been welcome in this movie you know like if, if they had really played it up a little bit more so now Professor Gibbs is greeted with Kitty uh, and now has to sort of pivot. The sort of workaround is that Mrs. Jackson will be present for the experiment. You know, another woman will be there. Sort of like a third party being present, you know, for this whole thing to make sure nothing is uh, untoward is happening. Once Kitty is injected with his own serum and the machine is fired up, she immediately becomes invisible. And I think the effect here is actually pretty cool. You know, they, they can't have a naked woman on screen. So what they do is the invisibility machine has a screen, right? So she's back lit we see her silhouette and the silhouette dissolves it looked to me like she was taking a shower it does kind of look that way i think it's supposed to i think it's supposed to be like this peeping tom moment where it's like oh you're looking at a girl through the shade taking a shower or something i don't know <laughs> maybe maybe i'm the creep but... <laughs> and like he even mentions that it might tickle 
But yeah, I mean, the silhouette is not scandalous at all. I mean, yes, it looks like she's taking a shower, but it's all from the front, not from the profile. So we don't get, you know, any sort of explicit detail. I think the effect works for the most part. Oh, it's very cool. Yes, I very much like the machine. That was a good workaround, too. And that effect seemed like it probably took some effort as well, you know? It probably it looked like it was harder to do that than just the way that they're able to make them dissolve on screen. Sure. Like, it looked like they put some effort into that machine. Yeah, I, I think it looks good. It's a perfectly fine workaround, pretty simple effect. But uh, yeah, I think, I think it works here. So now with the invisibility machine working as Professor Gibbs had expected it to, he runs off to grab Dick Russell to show off his great new invention. In the time he's gone, Kitty, of course, takes that as an opportunity to sneak out and use her newfound invisibility for her own purposes. And she immediately rushes back to her job to um, confront Mr. Growley. So while she's off doing that, Gibbs comes back with Dick Russell and there's a sort of that obvious gag of like, okay, here she is. And you know, okay, where is she? You know, and we don't hear her voice and she's gone. So now Dick Russell goes back in the house, tells George, continue packing things up. We're not saved after all. So let's, uh, let's just get back to moving out of the house. So we get a really funny moment from Charles Ruggles there. Okay, so now Kitty is back at her place of employment, and she is now, like, just kind of fucking with everybody. The seamstress, the other models, and they're getting ready for another, like, sort of showcase, right? Similar to the previous scene uh, where we've got these women who are looking to buy, and we've got a parade of models coming out with the latest fashions. And Kitty tries on this new dress, gets in line with everybody else, and we get a really great, really fun sequence where we have like two or three models come out, model their clothes, and then we get this shape of, you know, this dress with no head, no arms, just sort of parading about. Uh, women go screaming. Like, this is as, as horrified as anybody is in this movie, you know? Yeah, yeah. Wild to think about. Like, imagine like being at a runway show and then like just the dress comes right. out like floating in midair and everything. Yeah. Yeah, really cool kind of like Kitty on the loose scene. Also a lot of like cat references in this movie, right? Yeah. Like her name is Kitty. Yeah. They they experimented on the cat before her, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I love how she comes in here and she like trashes the place and, and she kind of haunts her boss, Growly. Really like, you know, accomplishes what she set out to do. I'm going to go become invisible and come back here and like stir shit up. And we'll find out later that it actually like did some good. Growly like kind of reforms a little bit. Really all she wanted was like better pay, better treatment, you know, overall better working conditions. To that end, she succeeds. She grabs him by the collar, gives him a piece of her mind, sticks him out of a window, kicks him in the ass a few times. And yeah, he's a changed man after that point, right? And who wouldn't be? I think Charles Lane does some really great comedy in this scene too. Not a guy who's really known for comedy, but you know, he's he does a great job of, of having to act the part of being kicked around by an invisible person. So props to him for that. Yeah, even getting spanked on the butt. Kind of frisky. For being this, like, sort of fascistic, domineering boss character, he does get a, a couple beats to, to actually play uh, some fun comedy. So as she storms out, she she tosses over some tables, of course, destroys the time clock, that dreaded time clock, and then heads out. The next scene we get introduced to our sort of gangster thugs, right? We get Foghorn, 
we meet Frankie, who's Shemp-Howard, and the third character is Bill, played by Edward Brophy. They imply that they're, they're privy to the ad that was placed in the newspaper for you know the, the test subject to become invisible, and they want to figure out who placed that ad. And so they bully the clerk at the newspaper to get the address of the person who placed the ad. Of course, they get it, and they arrive at Professor Gibbs's like little guest house. But what they don't realize is that Kitty is, she sees them arrive, right? So she knows that they're gangsters. They've got guns, and they're there to start some shit. There's also that really weird quick joke where like they accidentally stole a car from people who were just married. So it's like these three guys driving around in a just married car. <laughs> Very quickly establishing that they are not the brightest bulbs, right? You know, they just took the car and I think Foghorn, when he walks around the car, sees the sign and like gets pissed off and rips it off the back of the car. But yeah, I think the chemistry between these three characters is pretty fun. I mean, Shemp's an old pro at this point. But yeah, I think everybody's pretty fun together. They make a really fun trio. It's so weird to see Shemp. I mean, not that it's weird to see him necessarily not with the other Stooges even, but to be in an Invisible Man, like Universal Horror movie. I mean, but then again, they knew that this is where they wanted to go with it, like full-on comedy, right? So like to get one of the fucking three Stooges must have been incredible amazing for this. Yeah, I mean, at this point, the Stooges had replaced Shemp with Curly. I think that's the most well-known trio is uh, Mo, Larry, and Curly. But Shemp started as a Stooge on stage when they were a vaudeville act. And then between that time and when he would eventually rejoin the Stooges in, like, I think 1946, in that time in between, he was, like, kind of had his own movie career. So he was doing roles like this in that time and then eventually like as a favor to his brother came back and joined the fold for like sort of the end of the the three stooges films yeah that's really cool because you never hear about like the marx brothers breaking off and going there doing their own thing but it's interesting i never knew that he had sort of like that whole other career aside yep i mean he was basically doing the same sort of stuff but he was doing it solo or you know as part of other ensembles which i thought was interesting like i'm, I'm not a huge three stooges aficionado i don't i don't know a ton i you know i enjoy them but in terms of like where shemp started where he came in and and like the sort of history and, and timeline of that I, I didn't know that until i started researching this movie but um i'm kind of curious to see more of shemp's work like in the this time where he was not one of the stooges before i was like oh maybe like he needed the gig but now i'm thinking like he's adding kind of a legitimacy to the tone and the com you know what yeah. i'm saying like sort of cementing it if you weren't re if you weren't aware by now here comes one of the three stooges yeah my understanding is that he wasn't really interested in being a stooge you know, like once they hit the mainstream and when he returned in, uh, like I said, I think it was 46, it was sort of a reluctant move because, you know, he was asked to come back. So, yeah, this is Shemp kind of on his own terms doing what he wanted to do. Again, I think he does a great job in this movie with, with what he's got. Solid comedic actor. So now we've got our man Foghorn, the tallest member of this crew of gangsters, poses as somebody interested in this invisibility machine, somebody who came up from Mexico and is interested in potentially funding the research. But of course, Kitty had seen them arrive and let's Professor Gibbs know this, this man is a gangster. He came with two other guys, like completely gives them away, right? Yeah, really cool. Yes, and they're able to like scare these guys off for a brief period of time. Yeah, and Professor and Kitty are going to kind of team up for a bit of the rest of the movie. Yeah, they're a great pair. But he's, at this point, he's kind of done with her, you know? Like, she became invisible and then took off and left him in the lurch. Uh, and now, you know, they have no money. They're, he's you know, he's going to have to move out, so on and so forth. But, of course, he has a change of heart. 
when the thugs like leave he was pissed at her because she kind of like took off on him but he still wants to like prove to dick that it works right and then she starts becoming visible again and so she comes back and then he's like well would you mind becoming invisible again and she's like oh yeah sure whatever like no problem (laughs) that's right and then that's the scene where dick walks up the stairs and then george sort of follows him up the ladder and then has that great stunt where he like flops over the top of the ladder just in- incredible, incredible stunt. You know, I'm a sucker for all the stunts in all of the Universal movies so far and everything, and this was just terrific. Like, that was 100%. There is a stunt coming at the climax of this movie that I'm very excited to talk to you about. I have some fun notes about that specifically. Okay, so now we've got Kitty back, and she's willing to become invisible again. Dick has sort of decided, like, he's kind of over this whole thing. He's going to go fishing instead. So now it's up to Professor Gibbs and Kitty to make their case in spite of all that, right? Like, they're going to go follow him out into the countryside and, like, make him see the evidence of this work, right? Yeah, the irony of making him see yeah. how they've turned her invisible and everything. But yeah, like, Kitty and the professor are like, yeah, let's do it. Like, let's drive out to the country. Let's go up to the fishing lodge and, like, let's show him that it worked. I love that Dick, who is now broke and is being told, no, wait, the invisible woman is here. I can prove it to you, is like, you know what? Fuck it, I'm going to go fishing instead. (laughs) Here's a guy who's used to, like, you know, being out on the town and being, like, a playboy, womanizing guy kind of thing. And now, you know, he's broke. He's stuck at home. He's got nothing. You know, he's he's going through a depression, I guess. I don't know what's up with this guy, but he's like, ah, nothing matters anymore. I'm just going to go fishing. I'm not falling for that again. Kind of. He's kind of like that, you know? I mean, I'm not saying he's going to, like, be found at the end of a rope up at the fishing lodge or anything like that um but like he's definitely like in the doldrums where he's just like i'm tired of all this like back and forth and i'm kind con- you know it's it's one of those comedies too where people are constantly just missing each other yeah right yeah. like it's part of that formula as well so like that's happened a few times he's getting on george's nerves and he's like getting depressed He heads off fishing, but Professor Gibbs and Kitty have decided they're going to track him down and make him see that this thing works. And so Kitty calls her boss, Mr. Growley, who has a complete change of tune, right? Like he's now offering the world to his staff, right? Like she's really made him see the light. And so she calls asking for some time off so that she can go, you know, pursue Dick Russell. He's like, oh, of course, you know, take as much time as you want. So now the stage is set for that. Then we cut to... Our head gangster, Blackie Cole, first time we've seen him. We're now like about a half hour in. And this man, I have no idea what to make of him. His name was Oscar Homolka. He was often believed to be like a, like Eastern European, but he was Austrian. I don't know what he's supposed to be playing here. This threw me off so much. Like this guy, first of all, seems so familiar to me, but I just couldn't place it. He's got like the, and I think they might have embellished his eyebrows, but talk about <laughs> facial hair. His eyebrow game is out of control. Like I wrote in my notes, El Jefe, right? Because they're yeah. in Mexico and I was just like, he's the boss and stuff. But this guy is like German or something. Part of him seems like, a, oh man, I don't know how to put this, but like he reminded me kind of of like regular size Hervé Villachez, you know, okay. like yep. that guy, like he sounds yeah. just like him okay but like there's also like this weird german thing going on and and his assistant says that he's pomeranian which is from like around germany too yeah we're 19 what years 1940 so it's not like this is any kind of like 
Nazis hiding out in South America scheme. You know what right, I mean? Right, like right, that's right. where my mind went, but I don't think we're there yet in history. But I don't know. Maybe they did in World War One. I'm so confused though. <laughs> I know the actor is Austrian. I don't know really what he's supposed to be playing here. If he's supposed to be playing an Austrian character or if he's supposed to be playing... I, first, like, I, immediately I thought he, he was supposed to be playing like a Mexican character, but that's not accurate either. You just think it's like insensitive because of the right. era, right? And you're just like, oh, okay. Like, that's right. his approximation. It's way off, but okay. Yeah, so it's really like ambiguous to me as far as what sort of a character he's supposed to be playing outside of just the head gangster in this group. But anyway, he is stuck in Mexico. He's sort of hiding out from whoever, presumably law enforcement. He's very sensitive. He even says at one point, uh, nobody understands me. Did you ever see the in-laws, the original, the in-laws with no. Peter Falk? Uh -uh. Okay, well, there's a character, he kind of reminds me of, like, this South American drug lord they run into who's, like, very kind of, like, right on the edge, like, very temperamental, very sensitive, but very dangerous. <laughs> I mean, it works here for this comedy, for the comedic purposes, and as, as I'm sure it did for the in-laws. Or he's, he's on the phone with, with his guys up uh, north of the border, uh, getting sort of a progress update, and they haven't gotten the machine, you know, they're, like, they're not sure how they're going to get it, especially not sure how they're going to get across the border. But, you know, he doesn't want to hear any of that. He's like, it's your job to figure that out. I don't care how you do it, but I, I need it. We are learning that he wants the machine so he can become invisible and come back to the United States. This is the most insane thing. Right. They don't want the machine to do crime. Right. Like, he's like, I need the machine so I could become invisible, sneak across the border, like, because there's they can't just dig a tunnel because it's not 1940 or anything. I need to become invisible, get across the border, and go see my family because I miss my family because I'm stuck in Mexico because I'm, I'm wanted in America. I was like... Are you serious? Yeah. That was amazing. I think we can assume that once he attained the invisibility machine, that that's where it would go. I don't know. You don't know? I don't know, Dan. I don't think so. I think he was kind of like, look what this crime has wrought me. I have no family. I'm all alone. I'm hiding out. Like, I just want to get back to my family. Because we learned that, like, you, you know, it wears off, right? So, yeah. like, he just needs it to get across the border back home, I think. But that's where my, my mind went. I was like, crime never entered my mind again for the rest of the movie. Yeah, I mean, these are some of the most neutered criminals I've ever seen. Oh, and that's a funny choice of words because one will become sort of a falsetto later yes. in the movie which is sort of semi-neutered yeah we also learn that he's got a scientist of his own who's been trying to develop you know a path to invisibility not necessarily to recreate the same device but it's just strange to me that like he's isolated in mexico wants to get back to his family and like invisibility is his like first resort how did he even hear about this? Did he get that paper in Mexico? Did he get American newspapers delivered to him and he saw the ad or were his thugs like they saw the ad and they called him? Just like hollow out part of a car, get in a trunk, like you'll get there. Like there are means. <laughs> you yeah. don't need this. <laughs> and if you do get this, plot some kind of heist. Right. Yeah, but no, the heist is as simple as sending three morons to go lift this thing and bring it back. So I'm kind of complaining about it, but like the idea of why he wants the machine like do you think that that was scripted as like the joke like the joke isn't that they're gonna go rob a bank with this the joke is that like he just wants to like tuck his kid in at night is that <laughs> the joke like 
I don't know. I see. I still think that we can like assume that he would be using invisibility for crime later, but like his immediate plan is just to get home. But like at the same time, it's just the, it's silly to me that that's his first thought. Like I'll know what I'll do. I'll become invisible. I'll find a way to become invisible and get home. That to me is the most ridiculous thing. Another thing that I wanted to bring up. The fact that there are gangsters in this, it kind of reminded me of the way, I mean, it predates all of this, of course, but it kind of reminds me of the way those like 60s beach movies, those beach comedies, they would like throw in a biker gang. Yeah, it's so funny you mentioned that. If I could just, you know, we don't normally do this, but quickly, like Brian Rodriguez over on High School Slumber Party, which is a podcast on this network, has just spent the entire summer going over beach party movies with like Frankie Valli and Annette and everything. And you're right, it has a bit of that vibe of like, what's the next celebrity cameo that's going to pop up? Like, for instance, in those beach party movies vincent price pops up at the yep. end and like boris karloff shows up in one of them you know how wacky can we make a movie these days yeah it just struck me as odd that in a comedy like a slapstick comedy about a woman becoming invisible that the primary sort of antagonistic force would be a gangster and his like henchman just a ridiculous logic but it really reminded me of the biker gangs intuitively like that's kind of where i was coming from where i said it's misdirected like if you could take the same kind of plot and all the beats and direct it as a drama and it will swing because of the gangsters and and that kind of stuff like it's so weird to see that being part of the comedy yeah strange choice Nonetheless, this is the movie we've been dealt. So now we cut back to Dick Russell's getaway out in the middle of nowhere where he's been fishing and sort of recreating. George is in front of the fire, frying up some fish that was caught earlier in the day, presumably. Professor Gibbs is at the door and Kitty Carroll is behind a bush disrobing. And I think the goal is to sort of ambush Dick and, you know, get him to see quote unquote, see this invisible woman with his own eyes on their own terms, you know? So Russell shows up, Kitty sneaks in through the door and they're gonna sit and wait for Dick to show up. There's a great moment. Like I know we, we talked about cats popping up. There's a great moment here where the cat senses something is off in the room and hisses. I love that little beat. But um, yeah, I love the way that horror movies, like particularly at the, this era, will use cats to be like, hey, something's not right about this person. Isn't there even like a flying cat gag in this where like she picks it up and throws it across the room? Yes. She's like scaring the shit out of George and like he is refusing to accept that there's an invisible person in the room. And yeah, she picks up the cat and, sh and flings it at him and he just does not know what to do. <laughs> There's some good stuff here and there's some like again there's a lot of like the misogyny comes into play here that you know we've we've brought up to, you know she might be invisible but it's like a naked lady on a bearskin rug or whatever like all sprawled out drinking booze smoking cigarettes and those effects are great you know the cigarette up to the face and and taking a drag and all that kind of thing like very cool sort of uh stuff but super promiscuous scene right a lady alone with two men getting drunk I, I don't know like it just kind of surprised me that this is what sort of flew for comedy and then that's why I kind of gravitated more toward well this is more of like in line with like a sexier more adult theme comedy or something this is not for children necessarily yeah. even in 1940 I don't I wouldn't think this is the scene where like most of that sort of gross misogyny is present it's also mostly just gags this is like really where I think 
John Fulton is really having fun as the as the effects artist. We've got Kitty pouring drinks, and so we've got floating glasses, and we've got furniture moving, and it's all just to freak out George, right? Like gives Charles Ruggles uh, an opportunity to like ham it up in this scene. Yeah, Dick actually takes it pretty well. Um, you know, like he's like, "Oh, it worked, cool," and he's not really <laughs> yeah. necessarily like too freaked out by like what has worked. You know, he's just kind of like glad that the experiment worked, but he quickly does not like the attitude of Kitty. Like right away when they meet each other, they they kind of hate each other, right? Yeah, this has shades of it happened one night to, you know, another Clark Gable role, right? Like, and I definitely got the Clark Gableness here because they're like, you're right. He takes it very well that she's invisible and is, is existing in the room with him. For him, he's probably like, oh, well, the machine works. I'm going to be rich again. Great. Cool. But on a personal level, yeah, he, that, this is when he starts to pull that shit about how if she wanted to be invisible, she couldn't be very good looking. And so in order to prove that she is a, an attractive woman, you know, has that moment where she puts on the stockings so we can see her legs. Very provocative stuff, you know, just like a pair of floating legs on screen. <laughs> They're all operating under this assumption that she's going to become visible again shortly, right? She's been invisible for a while, but she doesn't. She gets drunk, she passes out, they have to cover her up and then carry her to the bedroom, and in the morning she's still invisible. And this is where we sort of learn that alcohol has an effect on the invisibility. It will prolong her invisibility. Very cool. I love that addition into it. I mean, I'm not even sure. I don't think that they were trying to say, like, drinking's bad for you or anything. I think they were trying to say, like, drinking is a party thing like it's fun the more you drink the longer you're invisible from everybody <laughs> yeah especially later in the, like you know sort of towards the climax of the movie it's like oh we're gonna chug grain alcohol <laughs> look at that girl drink that jug of moonshine holy shit <laughs> That scene reminded me of Raiders of the Lost Ark, where oh, Karen yeah, Allen yeah. is drinking everyone under the table. Yeah, <laughs> yep. although we don't get anything in this movie to suggest that Kitty can hold her own liquor, actually. she uh, In this scene, she gets very drunk and passes out very quickly. So this is maybe the grossest scene. I mean, there's some really cool uh, effects scenes, but this is, again, this is like sort of where the misogyny hits its peak, as far as I'm concerned. So Kitty's passed out, and while everyone's dealing with her, uh, we cut back to Dick Russell's home, where the invisibility machine is now left unattended. The only person to stand in the way of these gangsters is Margaret Hamilton. <laughs> you get Shemp versus the Wicked Witch. That's right. <laughs> it's like amazing <laughs> it's like i kind of wish it was more than just this but mrs jackson essentially just gets sort of shoved and locked into a closet our bandits get away with the technology but what they forget to grab is that serum you know so all they grab is the machine they don't grab the serum that goes along with that that i love the the combination is like a really cool idea because it just opens up all these extra possibilities of like i mean we're not going to get them but like at least it makes you think about like what could happen when you only use the machine but you don't take the medicine as well like i just my mind is like flying at this moment before i find out what happens <laughs> yeah i think the two parts to invisibility was a great thing I mean, we sort of talked about it already but you know just by them having a piece to leave behind or forget allows for comedy unfortunately like they kind of go in a weird way again as we get there but yeah i think that was smart just for comedic purposes it opens up the movie for more more possibilities i was just wondering real quickly too like about why they might have incorporated a machine right like if it was just like oh we should make this process more complex or whatever or something like the world's fair was just sort of like a year before right and mm -hmm. there is 
this all this kind of like computers and future tech and all that kind of thing and and so i almost wondered in the back of my head if like that was sort of a part of it like that again the driving the self-driving car right like something you might see at the world's fair is like i just saw bits of it here and there that i wish you know they kind of embellished more like this guy's a scientist like show us some funny inventions like make him the dad from gremlins mm-hmm, i don't know mm-hmm. something like that yeah i i had that thought as well i especially with the driving car the self-driving car like just the guy who just keeps inventing these things Although Professor Gibbs is is a much more accomplished inventor than the dad from Gremlins, but he's like an inventor without a focus, right? He somehow made the leap from a self-driving car to an invisibility machine. I don't know how you draw that line. Yeah, how do you not make like the bathroom buddy in between there, right? (laughs) (laughs) Or the smokeless asterisk. But okay, so we go back to Dick Russell's sort of second home out in the in the wilderness. Kitty Carroll is still invisible, and this is the scene where they learn that it was the alcohol that kept her invisible she's just like wrapped in a sheet walking around the house invisible like come on they didn't i don't have clothes for her to put on she's got to be like naked wrapped in a, in a bed sheet she wore her own clothes there that dried off overnight that she still hasn't put back on also they don't really allude to like the formula messing with her mind at all there was something i wasn't sure if they were going to incorporate or not that ultimately she just drank a lot she was already kind of like i don't want to say uninhibited or anything like that but like she wasn't bound to the confines of general society's norms right like she was already a woman living outside of what people wanted yeah i got the sense that you know because she she makes reference to the fact she's not really much of a drinker but i think that whatever it was about her being invisible made her crave alcohol Mm, okay that's interesting It, it affected her in that way and that's why she drank so much it makes sense right it tracks because the alcohol prolongs the invisibility so whatever whatever effect the invisibility was having on her body her metabolism maybe whatever was craving that sustaining drug which in this case would have been alcohol oh yeah i like that reading of it because it sort of is a perpetual thing it's like you got to keep drinking to you know keep the body happy but like it also keeps you invisible which means you have to keep drinking right that's weird i like i always just was like oh well she had a really long day of being invisible the first person ever to be invisible successfully like she's gonna have a couple drinks plus she's surrounded by strangers and it's there and it's just like i'll have one maybe i'll have two oh this guy's being a real dick to me like i'm gonna drink more and like tell them off that kind of thing i think the movie definitely plays up this whole idea of the alcohol making her sort of loose and a little more promiscuous you know for the sake of sex appeal it definitely leans into that but just from a purely like sort of narrative standpoint i think that's what's happening i think her body is craving the alcohol because it keeps her invisible you know like yeah, I love that. That's really cool. Yeah, really interesting side effect, right? We don't really get anything like that in the other invisibility movies. Yeah, and like this idea of sort of an unknown variable as well, right? right? right. Like I, I like that anytime you're dealing with like some kind of cure in a movie or something where it's like, it's just not working. And then someone accidentally like spills like cherry Coke into the vial. Right. It's like, oh, that did it. Yeah, exactly right. Like that, like they did knock over the vial, right? It's- yeah, so that's what's happening here. And, I, and, and the plan is to get back to the lab so that they can presumably find a way to get her visible again. And as they are on their way, we cut back to our bumbling gangster crew who have a truck loaded up with all of the hardware and they've somehow made it across the border into Mexico. We don't get to see how they do it. They just do it somehow. What were the checkpoints like in 1940? And I'm assuming they're in Los Angeles or something, this movie. I have no idea where this movie takes place, but I'm I'm just thinking California. You assume California, yeah. You assume that they would be not far from the Mexican border. 
out of all those border states, too, I was thinking, I was like, ah, this guy's like a playboy, you know, he's out all night. He wouldn't really be doing that in, like, Texas or something. They did go through customs somehow, because the, uh, the one <laughs> character, Bill, makes reference to, like, the guy at customs wasn't speaking Gaelic, so we gotta be in Mexico. <laughs> Maybe it's not so much what you take out of America, but what you bring into it these days. <laughs> okay, so they arrive at Blackie Cole's... Mexican hideout and he's very excited to get this thing set up and get himself invisible. We go back to Professor Gibbs lab and Kitty is once again in that like get up where she kind of looks like the beekeeper. You know, she's wearing the hat with the scarf around it. Her face is covered. Yeah, yeah. So for all intents and purposes, she is visible so that we, the audience, can see her and everybody else can see her. And the machine is stolen. It's gone. But what Professor Gibbs realizes that the, the thieves the would-be thieves, forgot the serum. So hope is not lost just yet. They don't even need to go after him. He could just build another machine if he wanted to, right? Well, presumably, but he does say that like it took like 10 years for him to develop. Oh, right, and all that money. Right. They don't have any more loot. Right, so they do have to go retrieve the original machine. But as he's like talking about that, he realizes that without the serum, whoever took that machine is going to be in for some really fun surprises because that machine apparently is going to do some unexpected things. I wish. I wished <laughs> that happened. It's just so weird, Dan. So like between this and, and the last movie in The Mummy's Hand where like I was really expecting two mummies on screen or something yeah. like that, you know, like it really expected that to happen and it just did. It just seemed like such a logical step. What happens with this machine could not be the furthest thing from my mind i don't know what they are doing when we get there but like what a missed opportunity man like we said it before what what i what basically like would have been the best thing is like you only become partially invisible you know something like that happens to you but like what ends up happening to you is so unexpectedly bizarre yeah so i mean the next scene it addresses that exact issue like the machine is set up blackie cole it wants to test it on somebody he's certainly not going to volunteer himself to go first and so foghorn poor foghorn gets sort of volunteered to go in there but without the serum what happens to him instead of becoming invisible he develops this very high-pitched falsetto voice and now this guy who they call him foghorn because of his like deep voice now sounds like he's like just sucked in a bunch of helium and that's the joke. Like, there's so many reasons I'm disappointed. But, like, one of the most confounding things is, like, I didn't know his name was Foghorn. And, like, I didn't think his voice was especially distinct throughout the entire movie. He wasn't, like, a baritone. Like, something that would have been an obvious contrast. Yeah, yeah. It's not like he was Claude Rains, even, or or, or uh, Vincent Price, right? Like, just not a distinguished voice at all. So that when this happens, to waste it on a joke like that just felt, like, so bad. And, and also to assume that like anyone who goes into this machine without the serum all that's going to happen to them is their voice is going to get high because that's what happens to the boss towards the end so there had to be another joke somewhere that i'm missing somewhere the only thing i could come up with is oh you sound like a like a girl now you have a high voice like a lady or you know like of the time i'm like what else could the joke be like you missed the obvious cool thing to do which right. is even funnier which is he comes out of the machine and you see like his right leg his left arm and like the top of his head, you know, something crazy like that. Oh man, Dan, I didn't mean to go nuts there. I mean, that's the obvious way this movie should have gone. It's surprising that it didn't, but I don't, I don't have anything else to add to that. I think you pretty much hit the nail on the head there. 
I didn't, I didn't mean to sort of take over for a minute, but like, it just seems so obvious. Like, how could I see it? But like someone working in the industry at the time writing these movies, not really come up and like, and as a joke, you know, I'm just thinking what would be funny, like not what would happen, like what would especially like what I'd really like to see is like mutations. Like I want him to come out of the machine looking all like two headed and you know, but that's never going to happen. <laughs> My only thought as to why it didn't go in that direction is budgetary. I have to think that maybe, because it certainly wasn't because John Fulton couldn't do it. He has proven that he could pull off all kinds of really cool invisibility gags. But I think maybe it just, they didn't have enough money to add more invisibility gags than what there are in this movie. So they, they decided as a cost-saving measure, the gag will be, oh, it turns his voice really high. I hear you. And that's probably what really happened. That's where you see, like, that's where you funnel some budget, you know? Like, you funnel it towards, like, this really fun climax where invisibility goes, like, out of control and, like, it's all out of whack. You know, in the serious version of this movie, I would love to have seen two invisible characters fight each other. We don't like, like, the invisible woman versus an invisible Blackie Cole, you know, just, like, going at it. There could have been a lot of fun there, but, you know, this isn't that movie. I hope the next one is. Yeah, the next invisible film, I believe, is Invisible Agent, and that is like a World War II spy thriller with an invisible protagonist. So you're going to get more action in that for sure. Yes. Yeah. So like, you don't want that formula falling into the Nazis' hands. And as, if I remember correctly, this is the only invisible person movie that literally has no connection to the original Jack Griffin storyline. Everything else, Invisible Agent and um, Invisible Man's Revenge, I think they, they both tie to the Griffin formula. You know, like this one stands apart from everything. And it's such an odd duck. So I know we're not really done yet, but uh, like since we're we're talking about this kind of stuff now, like do you think the next movie they release like in our time is going to be like the sequel to The Last Invisible Man? Do you think they'll title it Invisible Woman? There is an Invisible Woman in pre-production. After the Dark Universe failed, Universal, as we know, Universal decided they were going to like sort of do like a soft reboot and kind of focus on individual projects instead of a shared universe, right? So we got The Invisible Man, which sort of kicks off that new era and we're we're going to get a Renfield movie. I think we're going to get a Wolfman. And I know we're going to get an Invisible Woman that so far, the Invisible Woman has been like announced. It's in pre-production and the director attached is Elizabeth Banks. Oh, very cool. Okay. We know Elizabeth Banks has a talent for directing comedies. Oh, that's right. It's possible it will go in a comedic direction. Although with the ending of the 2020 Invisible Man, I would hope that it follows that sort of same serious tone. Whether it's a sequel or it's a standalone story, I kind of want to see them stay on track and not not go super silly with it. I feel like Elizabeth Banks can make that shift. Like I know she's mostly known for comedy, but she is a good director and she has worked with a lot of people and in a lot of horror movies. Like she's worked with Sam Raimi. I mean, albeit yep. in the Spider-Man movies, but like she's worked with James Gunn. She was in Slither. Like she was in Brightburn. Like I feel like she might have a grasp of that tone. You know, she. I, I'm interested now. That's cool. I did not know that. Yeah, I'm very excited about that. But I mean, so far there's like very little information. I don't even think there's a star attached. Well, this movie has whet my appetite for for like a kind of serious invisible woman film but we're not done quite yet moving on we have another scene with professor gibbs dick and our hero kitty carol it's more of the same shit we got from the sort of uh, vacation house more suggesting that she's not very attractive and you know it's just more gross misogynistic 
nonsense. Doesn't he make her put like a lampshade on her head as a hat in this scene? Yeah, so he can see where her head is. It's so bizarre because he's like, take off that dress because I don't want to just look at a floating dress with no head. And she's like, fine. And then he's like, now put on this lampshade because I don't, I can't see where you are. And it's like, what? Make up your mind, man. And also Invisible Woman, don't listen to this guy. This scene is where Kitty and Dick, they start to fall for each other. Oh, hard. Yeah, they love to hate each other. I just, I don't buy any of it. (laughs) I don't buy a second of it. I feel like this movie should have ended with one of them stabbing the other one. It just, they are so hostile that when like the sort of twist turn of like, I love him and he loves me and and, like, I love her, damn it. And I've never seen her. That's where you totally lose me. That's really all that happens in this scene. There's not a whole lot else. They have some repartee that uh, starts hostile. And by the end of the scene, they're in love. But there's one funny element to this all because they know that the gangsters robbed them. So they're expecting to be sort of visited again. So George is like on patrol, like around the house with his gun. That is adorable. Yes. So outside of this horrible, ridiculous relationship building sequence. We get George in the background of the scene, just like marching around. He's got a big hunting rifle. Yeah, I mean, it's just Charles Ruggles being Charles Ruggles. He's great. And actually, he breaks up a lot of this ridiculous nonsense happening around him pretty well. Every time he shows up on screen, I'm always very happy to see him because I'm, you know, sick of the bullshit. (laughs) And no, this is also the scene where uh, we get that horrible line, if more women were invisible, things would be a lot less complicated. God, okay. Luckily, I was quickly distracted by a shot that blew my mind where Kitty, like, grabs the professor by the lapels or something and, like, starts shaking him, but she's invisible. And Mm -hmm. he's, like, moving as if someone is actually grabbing him. So I'm assuming, you know, it's her in in the black stocking. Or it's John Barrymore doing some incredibly great, you know, physical comedy. See, that's the thing. Like, it's it's at the point now where, like, I give up. Like, uh, you know, like, it doesn't matter how they're doing the effects. Like, they just work for me. So uh, at least I was appreciative of all that going. It reminded me that there was some sort of effort and talent put into this. Professor Gibbs has, like, an antidote to the invisibility. It's I'm not sure if it's the same serum or, or, or what, but gives her another injection. And he presents her with this beautiful dress... Oh, that's right. It's like, you can't present yourself wearing that piece of shit. Like, I went and bought you this beautiful dress that a woman should wear the first time she sees the man she's going to marry. Right, and he's he's sure to remind her, like, no alcohol. You cannot drink alcohol or you will disappear again. Yeah, it's a reagent now. I thought that was cool. Right. And so the plan is for her to, like, become visible again in the beautiful dress and reveal herself finally to Dick. And outside, we have a couple of our gangster morons who are back, and they are there for the the serum that they had forgotten to grab last time. And, of course, we get some great physical comedy from Charles Ruggles as he interacts with them, and, you know, he faints outside and... So now we've got the scene where Kitty is fully visible and gets herself all made up. She's got to fix her hair, put her makeup on, put the dress on. She descends the staircase. It's very much like a, almost like a teen comedy, like high school comedy moment where like the ugly girl, quote unquote, gets all made up and comes down the stairs and he sees her for the first time. And I was getting a big Cinderella vibe for sure. Yeah, oh, totally. (laughs) Yeah. And so finally, like all of our characters converge in the same moment. As she descends the staircase, the gangsters come in. They knock Dick out. They kidnap her. And Professor Gibbs is sort of left. Or no, they, they grab him too. They grab him too. And they're going to take him down. And he's going to show them how, to, how the machine works, right? So now Dick, when he comes to, is in like full hero mode, right? Which, strange role for him to play. But, you know. It was that one guy for a while. What was, who, who was the character that he played in like several movies? Bulldog Drummond. Yeah, yeah. yeah like, 
like he was bulldog drumming at one point so like maybe that that's coming to the surface here for the last five minutes of the movie i love the gag where he's been like knocked unconscious and george runs and grabs the fishbowl and just like dumps the entire thing onto his face fish and all yeah <laughs> yeah it just struck me funny i just love that that bit of comedy there okay so bill and frankie have kidnapped professor gibbs and kitty but foghorn is still sort of left behind and dick and george are able to use him to find blackie cole's hideaway in mexico yeah yeah he comes looking for them to double cross blackie because blackie made his voice high right so now everybody is all headed to the same uh, mexico headquarters Blackie is like fully intent on getting this thing to work properly to make himself invisible. But Kitty is now completely visible, right? Like she's kind of useless, right? But she remembers that the alcohol is the reagent. So when she spots this bottle of, of just like pure grain alcohol chilling out on this desk, it's labeled. I love that the bottle is labeled. It's like one of those like um, laboratory bottle. It's just pure grain alcohol. On it. <laughs> it may as well say gasoline. It's like, like something out of like uh, the 60s Batman. Right? Exactly. Yes. <laughs> she just starts swigging grain alcohol out of that bottle like some she drinks a fair amount of grain alcohol how she wasn't on the floor by the end of the scene it's like ron swanson amount of like grain alcohol there's like a, oh. <laughs> there's a moment in one of the parks and rec where he just like settles a drinking dispute by taking the bottle and like putting it over his shoulder and just chugging the whole thing she is at that level <laughs> yes so the, the alcohol of course makes her invisible again she strips all of her clothing off and then like through a, a bunch of different you know sort of slapsticky set pieces takes out each of the members of this gang doesn't the professor even like counter off like after she like knocks one out then the other and then like she lures blackie with like she's like holding something and she's like come on blackie follow me and she's like that's right touch that big giant conductor and he yeah. does he grabs <laughs> like hold and electrocutes himself <laughs> yes gibbs is tied to that chair so there's really not much else he can do but observe but i mean i was happy to see kitty have this moment because like this is where she really gets to be a hero i mean as much of it is played for comedy you know which is kind of unfortunate like i do wish this movie had been a little bit more serious as we sort of have been discussing but this is her big heroic moment and i think that a lot of these set pieces work pretty well as as ridiculous as they are they are in keeping with the tone of this movie they don't feel out of place for better or worse this all kind of fits with the movie that it's in yeah like i feel this scene would be in any version of the movie this belongs like across the board the conclusion where the invisible woman saves all the men from the thugs right like yes. I, I, that's that's a great idea for the ending yes and so there's a really great stunt at the end of this sequence. Blackie has been electrocuted. She goes outside with a big mallet and just sort of conks everybody on the head, right? And knocks everybody out cold. I'm just remembering like the floating mallet everywhere and all that stuff. Right, right. And now I remember the stunt you're about to mention. Yeah. So as she is like glancing over the, the big wall that's around this sort of hideout, she sees the car with Dick and George and Foghorn in it. And Dick is like, you know, in like I said, in full hero mode. He's got a revolver in his hand and he's like fully prepared to like go in there and save the day. But little does he know, Kitty's already done it all for him. What's her goal here? She starts rattling off that machine gun and crying help. She doesn't want to make it easy for Dick to rescue her. You know, she doesn't want him to just like kind of waltz in and save the day. So she pretends that like there are still thugs guarding her and she like gets behind the turret and starts shooting at him with a machine gun. <laughs> yeah. 
I actually love that. Like, I kind of love that just, like, conceptually, like, who would have ever thought of that idea? It's like, I can't make it this easy for the man to rescue the princess. Like, there needs to be, like, I thought it was a clever twist. I gotta tell you, I thought that was a kind of smart thing to do, was to be like, he doesn't deserve me this easily. Like, I gotta make him work for it. Yeah, hard for me to question this decision now at this point, you know. (laughs) But Dick does get a chance to get in on the action uh, as he's up along that wall. Kitty's invisible. One of the uh, the guy who was up there manning that turn originally comes to, right? She knocked him out with the mallet, but he does regain his consciousness. Dick gets to punch him out, which in turn sort of knocks Kitty into that fountain just below, at which point Dick dives right into that fountain. Dives? Like more than 10 feet, right? Yes. Into a tiny little puddle of a fountain. Like it reminded me of when like you would see those ads of like, oh, uh, Coney Island where a donkey's going to jump into a bucket. Like it, it was insane yeah oh yeah 100 percent. now that was a real stunt um no because it looked like a, a false pool with like a deep like a deeper than usual thing or whatever it felt like they falsed it somehow right well i i know like you're the stunt guy you're gonna really appreciate this story so according to, to actor john howard who plays dick russell the rescue scene in the fish pond was one of the most hazardous in the film uh he said quote one stunt that blew my mind was when the stunt man dove into the fish pond which actually was a fish pond that thing was only about three feet deep no i used to do a lot of shallow water diving but i wouldn't have done that one for the love of money why is it even here like it does doesn't need to be in the movie. Maybe it's, again, maybe that is just the sense of humor. Like, look at this man dive into a tiny little pool. Like, isn't that funny? But to me, I'm like, that is like some jackass shit. Like, that is horrifying. <laughs> I was like, the guy's dead. It was scary. It was, the, uh, uh, the, Dan, we're finally here at the very end of this movie. And yeah. I got a, I got a scare. I got like a legit scare <laughs> out of something they were kind of trying to say, like, look how cool this is. I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> because I feel like the person responsible for that stunt should be credited. I couldn't really find anything concrete, but the, the belief is that the uh, stuntman was a man, Dave Sharp. He was like a Hollywood stuntman at the time. I just want to like give my best estimation as to who was responsible for pulling that off. But yeah, that was a, that was done legitimately and is one of the more harrowing stunts I think we've seen thus far. We're 12 movies in, like we've seen some really impressive stunts like Falls Downstairs and uh, Bride of Frankenstein, the goat herd woman, like she falls into that little pond. Well, it makes me wonder like if this guy also did that ladder fall too earlier on in the movie. Could be, yeah. Ass- assuming they only had one stuntman. Yeah, yeah because I mean... This- this movie has more stunts in it than any previous movie that we've watched for this show. And I wonder if that was sort of related to comedy in more ways than not, right? Because of like physical humor and, and stuff like man fall down, you laugh kind of base yep. kind of thinking. Yep. <laughs> but there's no comedy with this stunt. <laughs> I know. It's just shocking. This is pure danger. <laughs> pure danger dan that is that is exactly what that is so yeah so that stunt totally real and then there's a a dumb line of dialogue between dick and kitty about how they fell for each other har har but i will say that there's a really interesting effect here where he's standing up in the pond she's standing up in that pond and he like wraps his arms around her and gives her a kiss now his acting's a little bit awkward here but if you look beneath his hands they have actually gone to the lengths of of making it look like there's somebody standing in that space it looks like the water is spilling over like a lip 
That's not how water would behave if a person was standing, of course, but I love that they attempted to make it look like a, a person was standing in that space. It's just a, a neat little effect there. Of course, we've got Foghorn inside. His voice has come back. He's pushed Blackie into the invisibility machine. When he comes out, his voice is high-pitched. There's no real resolution for any of these characters because as soon as Kitty is like, quote unquote saved, the scene cuts immediately to like a flash forward where Dick and Kitty have had a baby. I mean, this whole scene is, it's only in there for like one reason. And it's so that uh, when they apply this like sort of alcohol-based lotion to the baby, the baby turns invisible, ha ha ha. It's genetic. They tried to go out on like a joke, right? And sure. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I watch an Invisible Baby movie. I, I watch that now at this point, like after what I just watched. Like that that makes about as much sense as anything else. There's a couple cool things though going on, like the idea that she has passed on the invisible gene or what have you. And that like not just booze, but like rubbing alcohol. Right. Like you could put rubbing alcohol on any part of your body and your entire self will disappear. So as much as I wanted to resist laughing, like I actually kind of found this to be an adorable little joke here at the very end it's all invisible baby oh no i would love to know like what audiences thought of this movie oh dude when they saw that baby disappear i bet they laughed harder than they ran screaming the first time they saw frankenstein i'm sure that went over like crazy but it's like oh my god i went to the movies and i saw a baby disappear at the end it was the funniest thing in my i've ever seen in my life yeah, I would suspect the same thing, but and that makes me wonder why there weren't a few sequels from this movie with like an invisible kid, you know, like you've got Kitty and Dick like raising a child and he's like 10 years old, like a Dennis the Menace kind of trouble, you know, he knows alcohol is going to get him invisible. So I'm wondering why these sequels don't exist. I'm not saying I wish they did because <laughs> I already don't love that this is like sort of a part of the uh, Universal Monster canon, but it does seem like a natural progression that they, they would have taken, but they don't. They never really revisit this. Yeah. I think there was actually like somewhere in the 80s or so, I think Adam Rifkin directed uh, The Invisible Kid or something like that. I feel like there is eventually gonna be like that. Uh, to be honest, what I'm feeling from this whole movie, this whole experience is like they went too far. They got way too far off track and off course from what it really means to me anyway to be a universal monster movie. And, you know, we'll see what happens. I don't know going forward, you know, are we gonna get funny Frankenstein? But just a gut feeling that like the studio might be like, feel the same way like we can't let this get this far out of control again like i think you know even if it would be bankable to do an invisible kid movie or something like that uh it just might not be right for universal for the brand you know i don't know right. I, I'm, I'm curious to know what this did to the brand because if i'm following these movies and, and i'm really into them and this comes out like this is a misstep this is a big misfire you know in the in the grand scheme of things so you have to do kind of you have to work kind of twice as hard to get me back into the theater next time yeah, definitely. And, and I remember the first time I saw this, I think I watched it. I was sort of marathoning. I think when I originally watched all these movies, I marathoned them by like whatever their overarching character was. So like, you know, all the Draculas are collected, all of the Frankenstein movies are collected. And I had the, the collection of the, the Invisible Man movies and watched them all through. And this one just caught me so off guard. It just put a bad taste in my mouth. You know, it, it, it's tough for me to reconcile this as a universal monster movie. But like when I watch it by itself, I don't don't hate it as much. Like I don't. I just I said it sort of at the top of the show. Like I don't think that it's necessarily a horrible movie. It's just a weird entry. I think it's the overall. I think this is the weirdest entry in the entire series. You know, we wouldn't have talked for two hours about it if it didn't bring us some kind of 
joy or something, right? right? Like we got something out of it. Ultimately, I think we had a good discussion about it, to be quite frank. Like, I think, you know, we're pretty fair and what we liked and didn't. And then also we're able to just like kind of embrace the spirit of it when we could. Yeah. But like also having said all that, we did say at the top of the show, like this ain't no monster movie. Folks. Yeah. <laughs> like, this does not fit the bill at the end of the day. You just can't like, I'm just really surprised that, that they went this far again. That's like yeah. kind of all I can really say in conclusion. I, I just hope we don't go here again. Yeah, I think that on its own merit, aside from the really sort of misogynistic content and uh, and themes that are in there, I think that the rest of it is a pretty okay slapsticky comedy. And I think a lot of that has to do with the, the fact that the cast was so strong. I think that the problems that I have here are mostly with the script and just the, some of the choices they made narratively. But I think everybody here is doing a really great job selling the comedy. I don't really believe the romance between Kitty and Dick, and that's not because of Virginia Bruce or John Howard. It's because the script doesn't really allow for them to lay much of that groundwork in a believable way. But you know where the comedy has to shine? I think it really does, and it's because they've got great comedic actors in there. They've got John Barrymore. They've got Charles Ruggles. We've got Shemp Howard. Donald McBride as Foghorn. Like, just all of them do do a really great job, as good a job as they can with, with that script. So yeah, I think what it boils down to is that this script is really lackluster, which is disappointing and kind of surprising considering the two guys who were responsible for it went on to write my favorite horror comedy of all time, Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. So yeah, I think anybody going into this movie should not expect it to be a universal monster movie. Just kind of enjoy it on its own merits and, and really be aware that it's, um, at least in my estimation, a little more sexist than is normal for this time period. Yeah, so overall, just kind of okay. So I think that's a good place to end here. Sure. But don't worry, we will be back on Friday, October 29th. And I hope you're all ready for a howling good time because we are finally going to be discussing The Wolfman. And I'm really excited about that for a couple of reasons. Because not only did The Wolfman kick off Lon Chaney Jr.'s career as a horror icon, but it also celebrates its 80th anniversary this year. Oh, sweet. So I expect that to be a pretty special episode. Yeah, me too. And we're starting a whole new monster series with Wolfman. You know, we, we had sort of a precursor with Werewolf of London, but now he's kicking off proper. So no more sequels for a minute. We will finally meet the Universal Monsters' favorite sad boy with the Wolfman. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at MonsterMadePod, on Instagram and Facebook at The Monsters That Made Us. And you can email us at themonsterstatmadeus at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Cologne. Now, Mike, where can listeners find you? You can follow me on Twitter on at the underscore Mikester, and then you can find all the other shows I'm on on the network at cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to become a Patreon supporter, you can do so at patreon.com slash themonstersthatmadeus. I just want to take a quick second to give a shout out to Jason Hedman and David O'Brien for becoming Patreon supporters this month. Thank you both so, so much. You can also support the show by giving us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Please do that. It does help other people discover the show and, you know, it helps make us feel good about what we're doing and keep us going. So please do that. We can't forget about our t-shirts on TeePublic. You can find the link for that in our aforementioned Twitter and Instagram bios. For all other things Cage Club related, just head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Stay spooky, everybody. <laughs>